All right, Second Peter chapter 3. We are continuing our series on how to study the Bible. How to study the Bible. Now, most of you know that, that our method here at Grace Baptist is line upon line, precept upon precept, preaching through books of the Bible. And as soon as we're done with this, we're going to go to the book of Acts and just go verse by verse through the book of Acts and see what God has for us there. But every, I don't know, uh, Dan, how many times have we done this? Is this the third time that we've done how to study the Bible, I think? Every few years, we want people to know how to read their own Bible, and why do we need to do that? Because number one, we need to be reminded, amen? We need to be reminded. Number two, God brings new people. We lead people to the Lord, and others, God brings other faithful families, some heretics like the Nehemiahs, but we have a, a few godly people that God brings in here, and and uh, so th- that's that's the heartbeat behind all of this. So look with me at Second Peter chapter three, and look at verse sixteen. As also in all his epistles, this is talking about Paul, and uh, an epistle is a letter. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things. Notice what he says, Peter, in which are some things hard to be understood. So Peter, the fisherman, had a hard time understanding some of what Paul, the scholar, wrote. Isn't that interesting? And yet we live in a time where everyone wants the Bible to be something that that a five-year-old can read and understand. Now, what what did the Ethiopian eunuch say? Philip said to him, understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, how can I except some man show me? But we've gotten in Christianity to where people don't want to have to show. They want it to be easy. But it's not. The reason that sometimes a translation is difficult is because what was written was difficult. And so, if we're going to understand the Bible, we need to know how to study it and understand it. So, let's verse 16 again. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. Now, notice what it says. Which they that are unlearned and unstable. So, remember one of the marks of maturity in Ephesians chapter 4, that, that you be no more blown about with every wind of doctrine. You're not blown about. You're stable. You're able to stand. That's what biblical maturity is. All right, And it's demonstrated by the capacity to speak the truth in love. But what happens is people who are unlearned, uh, I'll never forget, uh, Ed, I've told you, Ed Bermond and I were on the Baptist History Tour, and we're in this mountain church, and this preacher was talking about the subtility of Satan. The subtility of Satan. And, uh, man, it, his, his doctrine was as bad as his pronunciation. It was not a good situation. What happened? He was unlearned. And it's not that he didn't have degrees from some university. That's not the point. Amen? That's not the point. Do you know the Bible in its context? Are you able to preach what it says and what God meant when he said it? That's the unlearned. The unstable, the unstable are all in Congress. That's, that's, where, that's where they are. All right? But what do they do? Notice what it says. Which they, middle of verse 16, that are unlearned and are unstable, rest. Think of wrestle. Rest. As they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. 
So what Peter is saying is that that unlearned and unstable people are taking Paul's writings and they're resting them, they're twisting them, they're distorting them as they do the rest of the scriptures. There's a couple of things there. Number one, you can distort all the scripture. Number two, Peter is identifying Paul's writings as scripture. Very important that we see that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us today. Lord, we need you. And Father, your word is so important to us. Please help us. Our time is limited this morning. Please help us to have a good understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, because it's been a few weeks as we're launching our team ministry, I'm going to do a little bit of review on what context is. And it's going to be a little bit like drinking from a fire hose this morning. All right? I'm going to have to go quick because I want you to come back and hear Brother Folger tonight. And if I go too long, you you uh, unlearned and unstable. No, it's just, all right. Let's, let's look at this. Context. Context. Context is such an important thing. One of my favorite statements on this, I heard an old preacher say this, that um, he was giving a passage to someone who wanted to debate him. And he read the passage, and, and this person said, well, that's just your interpretation. And the preacher said, all I did was read it. And it means what it says. Amen? That's the idea of context context. So let's let's define what context is. Here's a little bit of a review. This is from J. Edwin Hartle in his book on how to study the Bible. And he, he this is his definition. That principle by which God gives light upon a subject through either near or remote passages. Sometimes you read a verse and it seems difficult. If you just keep reading, often God clears that up. All right? So that principle by which God gives light upon a subject through either near or remote passages bearing upon the same theme. Every sentence or verse in the Bible has something that precedes it and something that follows it, except Genesis 1-1 and Revelation 22-21. Isn't that good? And so that's context. You're not allowed to pull a passage out of Scripture and make it say whatever you want to say. Right? Um, you, you know about, my dad would always tell this story, I'm sure I've told it here, where a guy said he wanted to do whatever God told him, so he just opened the Bible, put his finger, it says, and Judas went and hanged himself. And he said, well, that can't be right. And he did it again. And it says, go and do thou, do thou likewise. Right? That wasn't written to him. Don't go hang yourself. Amen? All right. Now, but there was no amen there. I'm not telling you to go hang yourselves. All right. So this is from his book, Principles of Hermeneutics. But why is this important? Why is this subject important? Because the Bible says, and notice what I have highlighted there from our passage, they rest it unto their own destruction. And that's the heartbeat of this morning. I'm going to show you what happens when people don't understand a passage in its context and the destruction that has been wrought throughout the last 2,000 years of church history because people have rested the Scriptures. Now, don't get worried. We're not going to cover all 2,000 years. Now, look at this. Here's a principle. You will never understand your Bible if you confuse the Old Testament with the New Testament. And you know that's what people do. I demonstrated a few weeks ago how um, uh, G. Gresham Machen, famous uh, Bible scholar, he was a Presbyterian, and so he had the church starting in the Old Testament. Well, how can you have a New Testament church in the Old Testament? That doesn't work, does it? And so you have to know where the New Testament started. And one of the big problems we have in, among unlearned people is they think the New Testament started with Matthew 1.1. But Jesus said in the book of Luke, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. The book of Hebrews chapter 9 says that a testament is not a force while the testator liveth. Testaments are a force after men are dead. Jesus had to die for the New Testament to begin. 
Jesus had to die for the New Testament to begin. And if you don't understand that, it's going to lead to all kinds of doctrinal errors. And it's a a very simple declarative statement in the Scripture. The, the, The Testament is not a force while the testator liveth. And Jesus came and was the mediator of a new testament, not a new covenant. The Bible says in the book of, he, of Romans chapter 9 that what he's, the apostle Paul is writing about the Jews and how are they better. He said much in every way. But he says this, that unto them were given the covenants. We don't have covenants. We have the New Testament in Jesus Christ's blood. Amen. So, you'll never understand your Bible if you confuse the Old Testament with the New Testament. Now, if you're a guest here, and you've never heard any of this before, go back. All of these messages are on the website. You can, you can follow through and understand where some of this is coming from. Second principle, you will never understand your Bible if you confuse the law with grace. So, again, I preached a few weeks ago on the new man and the old man. That's the two men. And then the Bible talks about three men. The spiritual, I'm sorry, the natural man, that's the lost man living in the flesh. The lost man, that's the natural man living in his flesh. The spiritual man is the saved man, the born again man walking in the spirit. What do we mean by being born again? At some point, every one of us were born. Do you see the things you learn at Grace Baptist Church? Just profound, deep insights. But Jesus also said you must be born again. You must be born again. How are you born again? When you acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you have violated God's law. And the Bible says in the book of 1 John that sin is any transgression of the law. And if you have violated that law, that means you are under a penalty. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Revelation 21.8, it defines what that death is. It's the second death. It's separation from God forever in a Christless hell. And that's what we all deserve. And so, Jesus Christ came, was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died on a cross to pay for your sin and my sin. He was buried, and then three days and three nights later, he rose from the dead, proving that he was, is, and always will be God And if you will acknowledge that, and if you'll ask Jesus Christ to save you, acknowledge him as your Lord and Savior, he will save you. Amen? Now, how many of you have done that? You've asked the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. Praise God. If you have never done that, let today be the day. Let today be the day of your salvation. Now, here's the problem. We live in a Christian community. We are in a very religious community. And we're going to look today at what religion does. And if you don't study passages in their context, what can happen is you can confuse the law with grace, as our slide says. And what does that do? You start adding works to salvation. Okay, so who's going to be my, who's going to be my helper today? Let's see. Um, uh, uh, Dylan, come on up here. I thought I forgot a pen. That was going to be terrible. Come on up here. Dylan, are you amazed I remembered your name? Okay, good. Look how tall this guy's getting. Unbelievable. And I want you to know smart people have red hair. Okay, that's true. So let's say I want to make this pen a gift to you. What do you, it's nice, isn't it? Isn't that cool? It matches the clothes and all. So let's say I want to make that a gift to you. What do you have to do to make it yours? Now, your voice has gotten lower since the last time I talked to you. That is awesome. Now, I know I'm embarrassing you, but that's okay. So, in order to keep that, you've got to wash my car every week for the next 10 years. Why'd you give it back? Because you don't want it. Thanks, you can be seated. 
Why? It's not a gift. If you have to work for it, it's not a gift. Amen? How many of you understand the difference between working for something and having a gift? If you have to do something to keep it, it is not a gift. It's something you're earning. And what we earn for our sin, the wages of sin, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So when you confuse the law with grace, what you end up doing is mixing works with salvation. So I'll bet you, you know, what do you think? What would you guys guess be? 95%, 98% of the people in Shelby County believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're very religious, but they don't think that's enough. They believe in the death, burial, and resurrection, but they're mixing it with works And they believe that you have this grace, but you must mix it with works in order to be able to keep your salvation. That is not biblical. And you will never understand your Bible if you are mixing or confusing grace or the law with grace. Here's another principle. You will never understand your Bible if you ignore the context of the passage. And that's what we're studying this week. So key thought number one. This is from Mark Trotter's book, Keys of Bible Study. Brother uh, Folger was talking about Roy Thompson uh, in our Sunday school hour. He pastored the church there before Brother Folger. And one Bible conference we had, if you can imagine, we had uh, Roy Thompson and Mark Trotter were our speakers for this Bible conference. That was a hoot, having those two guys together. But here's what Trotter said. There are many cults and false systems of religion in the world that use the Bible as their supposed source of truth. So you can find any, many, many cults who will take you to the Bible to demonstrate what they are teaching, but they must take it out of context. Again, from Trotter, the false teaching that originates in these systems is rooted in biblical truth, and yet it is truth that has been taken out of context. In other words, it is a biblical truth that has either been misplaced and or misapplied. Now, this is all review, so we're not going to take any time here. The Bible can be made to prove anything, this is from Edwin Hartle, but not when studied in the light of context. You can pick out a verse or part of a verse. You can use it to prove a theory and make it mean something God never intended it to mean. That is not treating Scripture fairly. Have you ever said something to someone and it's repeated, but it's made to mean something you never intended? Well, God doesn't like it when we do that either. That's what happens when we take a passage out of context and it's not fair. All right, key thought number two. Every verse must be studied in the light of its context. Never take a verse out of its setting and give it a foreign meaning. Meaning, I'm going to give you some examples of that. R.A. Torrey, famous pastor of Moody Church in Chicago years ago, one of the original fundam- writers of the fundamentals, the booklets that gave the birth to the name fundamentalist. He said, too much importance cannot be laid upon a close study of the context. Too much importance cannot be laid upon a close study of the context. R.L. Moyer, he's who influenced that Edwin Hartle with his principles of Bible study, said too many preachers prepare a message and then hunt for a text to fit it. That is not a text. It is a pretext. How many of you have ever heard a preacher use a passage of Scripture and you knew it had nothing to do with the Bible? It was a sermon. We're not allowed to do that. It's wrong. Lockhart said the context is the key to the meaning 
So now let's look at some examples. We looked at these the other day, Second Chronicles 7.14. You don't have to take the time to turn there. How many of you have heard this preached? If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sins, and will heal their land. Every 4th of July patriotic service, somebody preaches that in an independent Baptist church. Have you heard that? The only problem is it doesn't have anything to do with us. That is completely out of context. You know what's going to happen? At the end of Zechariah chapter 13, what do they do? The Jews call on the name of the Lord. They humble themselves. They say, you are our God. Seek, seek, and they seek his face. That's exactly what the text says in Revelation chapter 6. That's what they do. That's what it says in Psalm 67. That shine your face upon us. That's what they pray. And what does God do? He comes and heals their land. Why did he have to heal their land? Because he had just destroyed it in the tribulation period. Nothing wrong with our land. During the season, i got to mow my grass three times a week. There's nothing wrong with our land. How many of you know that crops grow? There's nothing wrong with our land. Why do they think that's talking about the spiritual condition? Because they're taking the passage out of context. Amen? They're taking the passage out of context. This is one of my favorites. Look at Psalm chapter 2. Everybody look there with me. Psalm chapter 2. Brother Folger, you might have been in the meeting that I'm about to describe it's at a, it is a, ch- a church planting conference, and the pastor got up, and he wanted to preach on Spanish-speaking ministry. And he said, verse 7, I will declare the decree, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, I will declare the decree, the Lord has said unto me, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And so he used this passage to talk about Spanish-speaking ministry and how we need to go and preach the gospel to Spanish-speaking people and gather them up because God has already given them to the Son. We just need to gather them up. And so I was sitting next to a preacher friend, and I said, and here's what we're going to do with them when we gather them. Look at the next verse. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. How many of you do not put that verse in your gospel tract? Okay, come to Grace Baptist Church. We're going to dash you in pieces and, you know, and, and, and make you sludge. That's, this doesn't have anything to do with going and planting churches. Jesus Christ is going to come back. He's going to have the judgment of the nations. Zechariah chapter 14. Then shall the Lord fight with them as he fought in the day of battle. And that is the judgment of the nations that God is going to do. That's the context of this passage. When he set his king upon his holy hill. When is he going to set his king upon the holy hill? When Jesus Christ returns and sits on the throne in Jerusalem on the throne of David and rules and reigns for a thousand years. That's when that is going to happen. That's the context of the passage. You take that out of the, you take that passage out of its context. And what can you do? You can go into a city, you can go into a nation, you can preach to them, and if they don't listen, you can dash them in pieces with a rod of iron, and that's what religious people have done for 2,000 years. And that makes people hate the gospel. There are many other examples that we can give. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You're a city on a hill. No, you're not. You're the light of the world. No, you're not. That's Jerusalem. The Bible in Hebrew says, we have here no continuing city. Is that what the Bible says? Is that what the Bible says? You're not a city on a hill. If we are a city on a hill, what is the United States of America reflecting? Pornography, abortion, gay rights. That's what America is spreading around the world. Is that the light that we are to spread? No, all we're inviting is the judgment of God, and it is coming. Where's the United States in the Bible? In the book of 
in the book of Isaiah, it says all the nations are as a drop in a bucket. That's the United States in the Bible. The only nation that God cares about is Israel. Amen? So we're a chosen generation. A royal priesthood. Is that what the Bible says about believers? Praise God. We don't have a... We're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. That's what we're doing. These are passages out of context. But that's all review. Let's keep going. Here's a principle. It's a bummer when I look at my watch. And the sermon is just now starting. Okay, principle. You will never understand your Bible if you ignore the context of the passage. Okay, so here's the principle. This is our principle for today. Whose mail am I reading? Whose mail am I reading? So imagine Laura writes me a letter and she says, Jim, I can't wait to see you. When I see you, I'm going to give you a big kiss. And Patrick gets that letter. And he reads it. And he thinks Laura wants to kiss him. I don't know who would kill him first, Laura or Heather. I'm not sure which one. But how many of you think that it would be very important for Patrick to know who that letter is addressed to? Why don't we do that with the Bible? This is why we have so much confusion. Whose mail are you reading? Who is the passage addressed to? And this is the key reason that people misunderstand the Bible. So here is our defining passage for this. There are three people groups in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 10.32 says, Give none offense neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles nor to the church of God. The Jews, the Gentiles, and the church of God. Adam was a Gentile. Every human being between Adam and Abraham was a Gentile. There was only one people group, the Gentiles. It's often said that the first Jew was a Gentile. That's true. And God made of Abraham a great nation. Amen? So now you have Jews and Gentiles. But then when Jesus Christ started the church, church began with Christ. It was empowered at Pentecost. And it was ordered, structured, and propagated under the Apostle Paul. When the New Testament church began, now we have three groups. Jews, Gentiles, and Church of God. And if you're saved, anybody saved today? How many of you are born again? Okay, I'll I'll just ask you that about ten times today. Okay, if you're born again, you are in the Church of God. That means you're neither a Jew nor a Greek. We don't have those divisions. We're one in Christ. The Bible, the book of Colossians, Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross, he broke down that middle wall of partition between Jews and Greeks. Isn't that a blessing? We are one in Christ. So Jews, Gentiles, and church of God. So if you're going to study the Bible, who is this passage addressed to? Is it to the Jews? Is it to the Gentiles? Or is it to the church? And that will determine how you understand it. This is known as the people principle. The people principle. All right? Now, here's a question. I've got to ask this. To whom was this passage written? To whom was it written? I love hearing that baby. That is precious. Don't you dare take that baby out. We love it. Um, Dalton Robertson talks about preaching in a church that didn't have a nursery. And he said, I'm preaching and there's people bench pressing babies all through the church. So we all, we, we assume all the Old Testament was written to the Jews. Now, that, that's an easy mistake, right? But what about the book of Obadiah? The book of Obadiah was written to Edom. It was, it's actually written to Gentiles. It's an interesting thing. So what does that mean? Does that mean Obadiah is written to all Gentiles? No. No. To a specific group 
of Gentiles, it is written to let Edom know that God's judgment on them is sure. It is important for us to know Obadiah's audience because it will read differently than a book written to Israel. And so the book of Obadiah is considered very difficult to understand. One of the reasons for that is people don't know to whom it was written. That's context. Let's keep going. Understanding the significance of the people principle. Man, this is big. Okay, look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9. Now, how many of you think as Christians it's wise to listen to Jesus? Is that a good, is that a good decision? Okay, so here's Jesus. He is writing to the church at Smyrna. Often someone will say John writing to the church at Smyrna. No, this is Jesus. John just wrote it down. And so look at what it says. Verse 9, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. Always remember, God has a different measure of wealth than man does. Okay? I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blessing of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Did I, did I read something wrong there? What's the Bible word? Everyone? Now, is blasphemy good? And so what is this blasphemy? I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. What happens? People start reading stuff written to the Jews as if it's written to them. That's Patrick reading Laura's letter. And just as it would lead to, to destruction for Patrick, it would lead to destruction for people leading, le- listening to someone teaching them that they have replaced Israel. So the significance of the principle is that Jesus really cares about this. He cares deeply about it. So, why is this principle so important to our understanding of context? This people principle. Why is this so important? I'm going to give you some demonstrations of it. There are many religious errors that have their root in this particular error. Many religious errors that have their root in this particular error of confusing people groups when they read the Bible. Now, let me just, I just want to stop right here. I wish I could take about two hours and talk about all this. I know it feels like that already, right, Simon? But, it, but it's not. He's shaking his head, yes, that's terrible. <laughs> oh, uh, what's your name? Anderson. I almost called you Lincoln. I know that's not it. Hey, I got one right today. So this, this idea of context and people groups, please understand. I'm going to give you a few illustrations of it. We're not going to be here much longer But this is so important. See, yes, you do pay me to teach you the Bible. That is my job. And you pay me to do that. Praise God and please keep going. But I want you to be able to study it for yourself. See, the Bible says that you've got the Holy Spirit of God in you, so you have need that no man teach you. You have that. Who knows how much longer we have freedom in the United States? I would love for there to be you know, if there are, you know, 120 men in here today, I would love for there to be 120 churches under trees in different places in our community if this thing gets shut down. You have to be able to know the Bible. You have to be able to understand it for yourself and understand its context. This Old Testament, New Testament law and grace, the next most important thing is the, the, the people principle, Jews, Gentiles, and the church. You have to know that. Okay, so here we go. 
This is the chief exegetical error in all of Christendom. What do I mean by exegetical? We exegete a passage. What does that mean? That we look at the passage in its context, we look at the words, and what do those words mean? Those words mean what those words mean. We understand the meaning of those words by comparing Scripture with Scripture. You can go to a dictionary and get a definition, but if there are eight different definitions of that word, how do you know which of those definitions applies to the word that you're looking at by comparing Scripture with Scripture? How else is that word used in Scripture? God only used about 6,000 words. They were very specific words. When we understand and we look that up, then we know how to study the Bible, okay? So here are three religious systems that ignore this principle. There are three religious systems that ignore this principle. Now, quick review. There are only four divisions in Christianity. It seems like there's a lot more than that. There's not. They're all based upon authority. The four authorities. What is their authority? Four divisions in Christianity. Traditional Christianity. That's Roman Catholicism and mainline Protestantism. They have dual authorities. The Word of God and tradition. Now, how many of you know that? Right? If you, we're not insulting them. They would tell you that they, that they have dueling authorities, the Word of God and tradition. And if there's ever a conflict between the Word of God and their tradition, their tradition always overrules the Word of God. The best example of that is infant baptism. There are no babies baptized in the Bible. None. None. It's not there. And baptism is always for believers. It always follows belief. So if you have a traditional church that baptizes babies or baptizes someone that has not trusted Christ as their Savior, that is, that is a tradition that overrules what the Bible says. Amen? Okay, let's keep going. Charismatic Christianity. Okay, so this is the Pentecostal church, uh, the church of God, word of faith, many in the Calvary Chapel movement, the Roman Catholic charismatic renewal. Okay, and they have dueling authorities. All right? And that is the word of God and experience. And if there's ever a conflict between their experience and the word of God, their experience always overrules the Bible. Always. There's a third group, modern evangelical Christianity. This is conservative seminaries and many of our even independent Baptist Bible colleges. And this here, here's what their authority, their dueling authorities. The Word of God and scholarship. And they, they don't trust the Bible they hold in their hands. And if they find some authority through scholarship that says something different than this, here's what happens. Their scholarship always overrules the Bible. And the way that manifests itself is in a footnote. A better translation would be, or this verse is not found in the best manuscripts, or you can't really trust this word. One of my favorite examples of this is I was preaching through the Gospel of Mark 20-some years ago here, and I read a commentary that said, this text may be genuine. How many of you that instills faith in you? This text maybe. How about every word of God is pure? Is that a better statement? Amen. Amen. And God has preserved his word. So when in conflict, scholarship always overrules the word of God. Then there's the fourth group, and it's Bible-believing Baptists. And it's one authority, the word of God. God said it, and that settles it whether I believe it or not. Amen. Doesn't matter whether I believe it or not. If I don't believe in gravity, I don't then float away. All right? The, the, my belief has nothing to do with the truth. And this is our sole authority. God inspired and preserved his words, and it is our job to believe them and rightly divide them. And what does it mean to rightly divide them? To take them in their context. All right, so three religious systems that ignore this principle. The three C's. The first is Catholicism. How does Roman Catholicism, how does Roman Catholicism do this? Well, let me see if I, I think I built a slide for this. Yeah. Roman Catholicism teaches that Peter, the apostle to the Jews, 
Now, you know Peter was the apostle to the Jews. Book of, the book of Galatians says that Paul was given, or Peter was given the circumcision, Paul was sent to the Gentiles. Okay? So, Peter, the apostle to the Jews, was the first pope because Jesus gave him the keys of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 16, 19. Now, how many of you know that's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches? Okay? That's, and again, we're not insulting anybody. We're telling you this is the basis for their faith. But here's the problem. Here's the problem with that. So, Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, I have it here listed. If you want to look it up in your Bible, you can. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. So, how many of you know that Elijah is the forerunner of Christ? Right? So the Bible says... And some people wonder whether or not John the Baptist, he is called the forerunner of Christ. He wasn't really. He would have been the forerunner of Christ. He would have been the fulfillment of the prophet Elijah if the Jews had received the message. That's what Jesus Christ is saying here. It's, if ye will receive it, this is Elias. That, that's the, the Greek pronunciation of Elijah, the Hebrew name. Okay, So then he would be, which is to come, but he's not. Because Jesus came into his own, and his own received him not. Okay? So, what Jesus is saying here is the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. What is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is the physical kingdom that Jesus Christ came to establish for the Jews in Jerusalem. He came and offered them to be their king, and they did not receive him. So, this system, this Roman Catholic system has been trying to conquer the world to establish a kingdom that was never for them. We do not have a Jewish kingdom. We have a spiritual kingdom. The Bible says in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Jesus said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Don't say low here or low there. That's the kingdom. He said, the kingdom of God is in you. How many of you are saved? I don't know what number of this, what number that is. Then that's three. Okay. Then you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. Okay. How many of you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you? Not everyone that said they were saved raised their hands. Well, that means you're not saved because the Bible says, if any man hath not the spirit of Christ, he's none of his. Okay, let's try this again. How many of you are saved? All right, put your hands down. How many of you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you? That was almost everybody. We've got a few Pentecostals left, but we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep working on that. So this system has been trying to conquer the world and establish a kingdom that was never for them. The kingdom of heaven is the physical kingdom that Jesus offered to Israel and will establish when he returns. How many of you believe Jesus is coming back? He's going to rule and reign, and that kingdom's rule, and that kingdom's reign. It's going to be forever. It's going to be a majesty and glory, and we're going to see him, and we're going to rule and reign with him. Praise God. That's the kingdom that we're looking for. I'm not going to bring it in. Jesus Christ comes back and establishes it. So that's the problem with, with taking that Jewish message, and that's how the Roman Catholic system has messed that up. What about the Calvinists or Reformed theology? This is more Reformed Catholicism, and they practice what's called replacement theology. That is, because the Jews rejected Jesus and crucified him, that now God is done with Israel, and all the promises God made to Israel, they now apply to the church. That's called replacement theology, that the church replaced Israel. Well, you have to ignore Romans 9 through 11 to believe that. 
You have to rip it right out of your Bible. As a matter of fact, to say that you are Jews and you're not, Jesus calls that the synagogue of Satan. And so that's where the system it undermines. They say they're Jews and are not. What about the charismatic movement? They fail to see that the apostolic gifts were signs given to confirm the message to the Jews. All right? So here's what the Bible says in the book of Hebrews chapter 2. And if you want to look that up, it's Hebrews 2 verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. So when Jesus Christ came, his message was confirmed with miracles. Okay, I can't do any of those miracles. I can't restore your hair. I can't, I can't restore a leg. I can't do any of that. Amen? Amen. There are four specific eras of miracles in the Bible. You would think that it's all the way through. You would think that. And this is the mistake that the charismatic movement makes. There are four specific eras of miracles. The first is Moses in leading Israel into the land, establishing them as a nation. And then it continued for one generation after with Joshua. After that, there's not any miracles until Elijah comes. And what was Elijah doing? Elijah was establishing the office of the prophet among the nation of Israel. And God gave him signs affirming and confirming and we'll, we'll see that this is going to come back. But it continued one generation with, I'm sorry, I put Elijah. It's with Elisha, with Elisha. Then the next era was Jesus Christ. He was offering the kingdom to Israel. And that continued one generation on with the apostles. That's, that's what happened. What did Jesus say about looking for a sign? Now, be honest with me. How many of you would love to see a sign? Would you be honest? Me too. I would love that. And what does that say about me? Look at what Jesus said. A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. What was that sign? Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the, in the belly of the whale. What did Jesus say? Here's the sign. I'm going to be buried for three days and three nights. I'm going to rise from the dead. That's your sign. That's the, sign, that's the only sign that we have. Amen? It's the only sign that we have. So you had the first generation was Moses, one generation after with, uh, uh, with Joshua. And then you have Elijah and the next generation after with Elisha. Then you have Jesus Christ, the next generation after with uh, the apostles. What is the fourth group? Tribulation period. During the tribulation period, you have two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, and they do the exact same miracles that they did when God used them to do the miracles the first time. How cool is that? That is awesome. All right, so now, you guys don't care. I, could, I think that's really cool, but all right. Now, 1 Corinthians one twenty one says, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. So God doesn't give me the power to do miracles. I just preach. I just preach. And that might seem foolish to people. You're telling me that there's a God that created everything. Well, it's better than your position. You say in the beginning there was nothing and then it exploded. Which is dumber than that? Let's keep going. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. So what do we do? The, the, some people, the charismatic movement, will take and try and do miracles that were for Jews. That that was the purpose of those, was for the Jews. And then we have the apologists who, they try to use human reason to lead people to Christ. 
And you can't lead people to Christ with human wisdom. It's foolishness. Before that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. Philosophy is wisdom, lover of wisdom. God says you can't come to God by that. You can't know God that way. It's through the foolishness of preaching. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. And here's the problem. We don't want to look foolish. So you really believe that a dead man got up and walked? Absolutely. That is absolutely. That's foolish. There you go. If you don't believe it, we're going to find out who the fool is. Amen? Amen. All right, let's go on. The people principle. When we fail to apply this principle, we cannot understand our Bible, and it will lead us into devastating error, as it says in 2, Timothy, or 2 Peter, to their own destruction. Error so evil that Jesus calls it the synagogue of Satan. But here's the worst part of it. This leads to a false gospel. It leads to a work salvation or maybe a limited atonement. What does that mean? That maybe Jesus didn't die for you. He only died for the elect. How many of you are glad Jesus died for you? When the Bible says he tasted death for every man, do you know what I think that means? He tasted death for every man. Amen? And then it also leads to a second working of the Holy Spirit. In the charismatic movement, you have this idea that you have the haves and the have-nots in Christianity. Yes, salvation is by grace, but, but you have to empty yourself, and you have to be faithful, and you have to have enough faith. And if you'll do that, then God will give you the second working of the Holy Spirit, and you'll speak in tongues. That is just not biblical at all. When you get saved, the Bible says, for we are all baptized by one spirit into one body. You get the baptism of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, and then you also get the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the Bible says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Anybody saved here today? You have the Spirit of God in you. You're not waiting for any more. When the Bible says, be filled with the Holy Spirit... It follows it up with speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Then you go over to Colossians 3.16. And the Bible says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. The evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit is the same thing as letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's the exact same thing. It's nothing mystical. Because Jesus said in John 6, 63, The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Eat them. That's what he said. Consume them. If you'll let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly... That is what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Dalton Robertson, I heard him preaching, and he said, people get this weird idea that you pray on your mother's grave for two weeks, and now the Holy Spirit of God falls on you, and now you preach the same lame sermon that you preached before, but now thousands come to Christ. No. Being filled with the Spirit is letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Amen? And the only way you can let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly is if you understand it in its context as God intended it. When you get away from it, what happens? You end up with a work salvation, a limited sacrifice by Christ, and a second working of the Holy Spirit. All of that is heresy. Context. It's so important to understand the Bible in its context. And here's the blessing. How many of you are saved? If you're saved, stand up. If you're not, we're going to talk with you. Okay, everybody stand up. 
Are you saved? You have the Holy Spirit of God in you? How many of you own a King James Bible? You can understand it. You can understand it. If you would like to understand your Bible better, we have a ministry. It's called discipleship. One-on-one discipleship. We have 71 trained disciplers ready to teach you the Bible and prepare you to teach someone else the Bible. Amen? We're, we're, We're here for you. We are here to help you. You say, I read it and I'm having a hard time. You need to get signed up for discipleship. We will help you. But the most important thing is, are you saved? Are you born again? If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal life, let today be that day. Let today be the day of your salvation. We're going to sing a song of invitation here. And if you'd like us to take the word of God and show you how you can know for sure, and just come forward and we'll do that. But let's do this. How many of you know how to take the Bible and lead someone to Christ? Would you raise your hand? Hold them up. Hold them up. Look around. If you're here and you're not sure, go to any one of these people. They'll take the Bible and show you how you can know for sure that you're saved today.